John Pershing, a member of the U of R class of 2010, worked at 1010 Data for over a decade after graduating with his degree in computer science, reaching the role of VP of Software Development. Since the time of recording, John has moved on to become the CTO of What If Media Group. Sadly, I was unable to record this episode, but I'll be leaving you in the trusty hands of Danae and Green Center Director Joe Testani. I hope you enjoy their discussion of the computer science industry, what it means to bring value to a company, and their management philosophies on this episode of Careers Unfiltered. and welcome back to Careers Unfiltered. My name is Danae, and today I'm joined with my co-host, well, standing co-host, Joe Tostani. Sorry, Bryce is not here, but um, hopefully I can do justice to the role. Yes, Bryce was unavailable today, so we're lucky to have Joe in here. So thank you for joining us, Joe. No problem. My pleasure. All right. So we're excited to introduce our next guest, which is John Pershing, the VP of Software Engineering at Tonton Data. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here, John. Thank you, Joe. Um, I have to say, I don't, know if, I don't think I told you this, today. I think John was one of the first alumni I met when I started here four years ago. I think it was, I was like the career expo time. It was around this time of year. You I came in that. recruiting for 1010. And I remember how excited you were to be back at U of R recruiting again, like bringing all these like fresh new talent at 1010. And I was like, if all alumni are like this, like I am good to go in this job. <laughs> like it's, he was just such a like a champion and such a like rabid supporter of of U of R. So I, I, that's my first memory of you back in four you four about four and a half years ago now. Right before we uh, started recording, I was telling Danae tomorrow will be my eleventh U of R career expo. Oh my gosh, that's great! It's more than I have, I've done <laughs> as U of R. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's so. honestly like you just get a plaque or something. Yeah. That's amazing. There we go. I mean, Rochester has spectacular talents, and 1010's looking for top-tier students. That's awesome. It's yeah. a match made in heaven. Yeah, oh, I agree. Yeah, Agreed. 100%. Yeah, thank you for everything. Thank you for 11 years of, of recruiting and, bring, and bringing the talent to 1010. So. I said, I love every minute of it. That's awesome. Okay, so since Bryce wasn't able to join us today, he did submit a few questions. Of course. So Makes I'd like sense. to at least honor his presence and see <laughs> if we can capture some of those moments. Um, one thing that he was really interested was, as an undergrad, did you ever imagine working for the same company for a decade right out of school? Never. Never. My original plan when I joined 1010, so I worked there as an intern in the summer of 2009, and this was advice from my career advisor. I was interested in moving in academia. I wanted to pursue a PhD. And the advice I got was, you sh- I've done, I'd done two summers of research at that point. Mm-hmm. And the advice was, do a summer in industry. It will help your PhD program applications look more well-rounded. So the original, as an undergrad, wow. expectation when I joined 1010 was, oh, this is just filler for my PhD applications. Did you have it in your head that you were going PhD route? Like, is that what you were like? Set on. If you had asked me the semester before I joined 1010, yeah. where do you see yourself in five years? It would be defending a doctoral dissertation. Wow. Wow. So what was it that made you change your mind? There were a couple things. Okay. So the first one was some advice I got from a mentor at 1010, a man named Adam Jacobs. He gave me some advice that in a lot of 
science disciplines, once you leave the academy, you kind of lose your blessing. Hmm. And I'm not going to call out specific institutions, but the thing he pointed out was that computer science isn't that way. Sure. So his comment was, spend some time in industry, pay off your loans, um, get some real-world experience, yeah. and then if you really want to pursue a PhD, take that real-world experience and bring that back to academia and apply it in a way that you probably wouldn't be able to if you went into a PhD program straight out of college. So that was one big piece of advice that really let me think outside the box. Yeah. The other one was I just really loved the people at 1010 Data. When I joined, it was 20-odd people, and it was this tight, close-knit uh, culture of just incredibly smart, incredibly passionate people. And when they made me an offer at the end of the summer, I couldn't say no. Wow. So you were sold. Like after three months, you're like, I'm all in, like, come in. I worked part-time for my senior year, transitioned immediately into a full-time role, and 10 years later, here I am. So how is the conversation coming back to Rochester? You know, you were PhD bound, you were, you were like <laughs> research all in, and then you had to come back and have that conversation with your advisor and be like, so... <laughs> I had to let Michael Scott know that I was no longer going to be working in his lab sure. because all of my free time was going to be spent working part-time for 1010. Yeah. I had to let my advisor know that his advice was too alluring. <laughs> um, Oopsie. <laughs> I mean, my view on this is that as an undergrad, I didn't understand what really the professional experience was yeah. like in industry. And I got a taste of industry and realized that it really was what I was looking for. So how did you, like, taking a step back, how did you even come upon computer science to begin with? Like, where did that come from coming out of high school and coming to U of R? So I'd always been interested in computing and computers. I started programming when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. Wow. Um, I was trying to cheat at video games. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, so <laughs> legit reason to what learn. What video games? This is, uh, what video? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. At the time, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> this was like, I remember being on news groups in the 90s looking for ways to like automate around things. Wow. And I found... The first programming language I ever worked in was um, VV, so Visual Basic. And at one point, I got home, and the VB um, program that I had on my desktop was gone. And in the icon where it was, it was replaced with a Lisp interpreter. And my father is uh, hes a computer scientist. He's been a programmer for his entire life. Oh, wow. And... He, you know, I, I went and asked him, I said, what is this? And he told me, no son of mine will learn to program in visual basic. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is probably, I was, you know, in middle school at the time. And so I started putzing around in Lisp. And in high school, I took C++ and Java classes. Sure. And so when I got out of high school, the just, it was going to be something computing driven. Yeah. Whether it was electrical engineering or computer engineering or computer science, yeah. it was, that's what I was passionate about. And, you know, playing off the same theme, leaving high school, the expectation was, oh, I'm going to make video games. Yeah. And then I got to university and realized, oh, there is no job security in the video game industry. It is comically overworked. And I decided I wanted something a little more stable and yeah. fulfilling. Research at university definitely fits the bill for that, right? So that was that was the original goal. Yeah. And it's a 10 years in industry now. Yeah. Is, a little bit different than that. So, is your, so I don't know anything really much about computer science. Was your dad right about Visual Basic? When oh, yeah. That? Gosh. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just had uh, my first child. He's 15 months old now. Yeah. And I can say the same thing. No son of mine <laughs> will learn how to program in Visual Basic. 
VB's less prevalent now than it sure, was, sure. you know, 20 years ago. So it's a family tradition now that, that no, <laughs> no sons in your household will be learning go. Visual Basic. I will say I have to give credit where credit's due. My wife, she is also a programmer by trade. Um, she runs her own business. She does automation and Excel for businesses. Oh, awesome. And she programs in Visual Basic all day. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so your dad, did your dad pull you aside? Like, just like, I really like her, but I'm really disappointed <laughs> about her Visual Basic skills. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you got past that with your dad. Ah, <laughs> so yeah. to move forward. So he forced it upon you. Didn't really have much of a choice at the yeah. time, it sounds like. So I appreciate it. I learned to think about programming in different ways from a young age, and it's yeah. been very useful. Yeah. So I was curious about, you know, you were you started as a sort of working in software and probably doing a lot of coding and working on the computer, but now you're a VP. And how is that transition? Because, you know, a, a lot of people, and I think a lot of our students, when they're, you know, they get into these different parts of engineering or different, and they're doing the very mu- things that they're learning in class, but at some point they're transitioning out of that into this management role or, or strategy role or whatever it is. How was that transition and, and, and like who helped you in that transition? So I'll answer your question, but first I want to push back a little bit sure. on something you said. So there was a time in the industry where in order to grow and advance your career, you had to move and transition yeah. out of an individual contributor role into a management role. That's much less the case these days. That's good. Okay. So most tech companies, especially tech companies that get above somewhere in the two to 500 person bracket, adopt a career development plan that includes individual contributor tracks or sure. IC tracks as well as management gotcha. tracks. Yeah. So at a company like Facebook, so I have a bunch of friends that work there, you can almost seamlessly transition from an IC role into a management role. If you don't like it, you can switch back. And there's no sort of seniority gap between gotcha. management and individual contributors. If you're, you could be a very senior IC and be the tech lead on a team, or you can be a engineering manager and be more people focused. But the computing space and you know, the computing industry has really adopted sort of more fungibility between those. Yeah. And I think there's, that's really valuable because there, there are two types of engineering managers. There are people who have gone through the kind of transition you described where yeah. they felt compelled to transition from individual contributions into management. And then there are those that actually want to pursue that where they get some sort of satisfaction about managing and growing people. And the latter is a lot more effective yeah. at the job. There's a lot of very bad managers yes. in computer software just because people feel like that's what they have to do yeah. and they're not there's no passion for it they don't like it and when you sharpen your career for the first part of your life working with computers that do exactly what you tell them and then you sometimes abruptly transition into a role where you're working with people that are far less exact than yeah. machines yeah. it's a rough transition for a lot of people but you asked how I went through that yeah. transition. So in 2012, I hired my first engineer. At the time, I had built a bunch of stuff for 1010 Data. And I was spending 100% of my time supporting all the stuff that I'd built up until that point. Sure. So I had no time to build new things. And that's a common theme in um, the tech industry is people want to be building sort of new, interesting stuff. So... With my boss, I said, I'm spending all of my time supporting all this old stuff. I want to build new stuff. He said, okay, hire somebody. And then you will each spend 50% of your time supporting <laughs> the old stuff. Yeah. And you'll both have a bunch of time to work on new stuff. So 
I hired somebody that was very much just out of necessity. Yeah. We had more things to do than I could do on my own. So we brought another person in. Uh, they were a referral and they're still at 1010. They actually run the original team that I built there. Oh, wow. So, so my first hire was a really great hire. That was a good hire. Um, yeah. But that was my first transition into management. And at the time, it was less of me being the boss and yeah. more kind of partners in crime. So we, I did a performance review at the end of the year, but for the most part, it was just we coded, we took turns handling support, and we built stuff. And that's how it started. Yeah. And the years went by, and we encountered the exact same problem several additional times where we... Now we were building things twice as fast because there were two of us, which meant that we quickly consumed all of our time in supporting the larger set of things we'd built. So we hired another person and repeat that a few times. And now I had five people working for me. And that was very different. Yeah. Sort of when it was just me and another engineer, the, your kind of management overhead is five or 10%. Yeah. So you're still spending most of your time writing code. But when it's when you're managing five people, you have to put a lot more effort into the people. And the big turning point for me was I was working on a project. Um, and actually, the key is I wasn't working on the project. My team was working on a project. Mm -hmm. I had provided a little bit of architectural guidance in the beginning, but it wasn't something where I did any hands-on coding. I did a little bit of code review, but it was mostly something where a subsection of the team was working on it autonomously. And I had some coaching and the product was shipped. And I had an epiphany of, oh, I couldn't have done that on my own in the time frame that we delivered it. It was a sort of tight, under-the-gun project and the team did their jobs. And that was incredibly gratifying. Wow. And so my real sort of aha moment in management was when I realized I can derive a lot of utility from growing a team. So if anybody who's done any amount of programming will have a moment where they first got a program to compile and run print hello world on the screen or the first time you get your first networked program working and you type it in one computer and it pops up on the other. And sure. there's this real eureka moment. And I had that in management. And from that point, I was sold. Wow. That's pretty cool. Now, how, so where does your time sit now in terms of how much time you spend? Do you still get oh, so to code a little bit at work or is it like all management or how does it, how does your distribution work now? So it would be irresponsible of me to be writing code right now. Sure. Not because I can't, but because if I was writing code, that means that that time wouldn't be invested in the team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And from the company's perspective, our ROI on my time is much better invested in the team than it would be me writing code. Yeah. Um, the a test of a manager is your ability to not contribute in a hands-on way and have the team move forward. If you can take a vacation and not have to hold the team's hand the yeah. whole time, that's a, a big sign of success. Sure. So for me, I think this calendar year, I've made two commits to the system. This was a really instances of poorly lined up vacations with production issues all lining up at the same time where I had to step in and dump some water on it and not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but 100% of my time is yeah. invested in management at this point. That's good. Okay. Do you, do you miss doing code? Like getting like, hands-on in that way? So I scratch my coding itch 
at home on personal time. I okay. mentioned earlier my wife, she does a bunch of Excel automation and work in Google Sheets. So I'll work with her from time to time when she's a little bit overcommitted. As I said, our 15-month-old yeah. takes a lot of time <laughs> I'm up. I'm sure, they sure they do. Um, and occasionally I'll automate something because I don't want to do it manually. And in those spaces, I get to code in the margins. But at work, professionally, it's mostly management now. I love the way you described kind of your responsibility to your team and the people to bring them along. So I'm curious, where did that come from? Obviously, maybe it was modeled to some degree, but it's a, it's a very like specific outlook on like what your what your role is to help them and to really advance them. And as you mentioned, that's not always the case with managers, right? Like we get a, and I think it's it, it I think it's permeates across industry. Janae came up in the communications. I'm in higher ed, and we can all probably point to examples of poor management, poor leadership, uh, you know, that, that we've experienced. So how did you come to your, I guess, philosophical sort of perspective on like what your responsibility is to the team? I mean, again, I'll bring it back to something I said earlier, which is the way I can, like my role at the company is to bring value to the organization. Any employee can look at, you know, very economics, you know, driven view of you bring some value to the shareholders. So at some point when I was managing a team of some size, there was an epiphany of I bring the most value to the shareholders by building an engaged, motivated, happy team. When people are happy, they are more productive. When people are enthusiastic and engaged, when they're motivated, they are more productive. Um, There's a book called Prime to Perform. It talks about a model called Total Motivation. Uh And it looks at facets of motivation that positively and negatively impact someone's engagement with their workplace. Hmm. So I use that as a measure to measure how successful I'm being with motivating my team. And it gives me a very quantifiable, I'm a very metrics driven person. So it gives me a quantifiable way to say, how much value am I bringing to the organization? And we can look at Projects get delivered. Are they ahead of schedule sure. or behind schedule? And the, but those are spread out and sort of there's, it's harder to be more exact um, when you're dealing with sort of things at our scale. But I can look at sort of how motivated is the team? How, what does their output look like? And with that, it's very easy for me to go to my boss and sort of justify that I'm doing a good job. Yeah. So you could say it's, totally selfish that they go I want to present myself as best as possible (laughs) to the people who are deciding what my bonus is going to look like at the end of the year Um, but I also I mentioned this earlier I derive a lot of utility from seeing people grow and succeed it was something that I said you asked me a handful of years ago I would have said where do you see yourself in five years it's oh I'm going to be a architect I'm going to be responsible for coding the big projects and now my view is I want to be responsible for the teams that code the big projects. That's awesome. I could talk about that topic all day. I like, know. I love, it's so like, interesting. Management yeah. and like leadership topics. And I always am drilling the team or giving them books to read here in the office. But I think it's really fascinating because sometimes it's not modeled sure. you know, mm-hmm. the way it can be. And so how do you form that? What informs that? You know, what are the different you know, personal experience, the professional experiences that start to shape how you look at the whole dynamic of leading people or bringing people, motivating people. Because I think there's such a massive difference between 
motivating people and being like just leading them and right how do you bring them along how do you get them excited about the, the grind that's the work yeah there's if you can convince people to take the best path on their own then you yeah. don't have to lead them yeah it's good it's good advice that's one yeah one that's one really good for, i know for the show <laughs> that was really good so going back to the fact that you started at 1010 data as um a sophomore software development intern and now here we are talking about you being in management that's quite a big jump right and so referencing a little bit how you've been there for 10 years and you have definitely showing loyalty to the company was there ever a moment where you're like oh like should I shop around especially in an industry that can feel like there's rewards for shopping around and seeing what else is out there sure so I will say from a Game theoretic perspective, the best way to maximize your earning potential is to change jobs a lot. So yeah. just if you look at compensation data in industry, your average raise year over year, if your company is doing well, might be 3 to 5%. Um, your average comp bump changing positions will be close to 10%. So if you're changing jobs frequently, then you're going to make more money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned, has there ever been a moment where I've said, should I shop around? So the configuration I have been in pretty much since I started at 1010, so maybe 2011-ish, so a little bit after, has been I'll take serious opportunities seriously. I'm not gun-shy about talking about this with my boss. My view has been 1010 is a great place to work, but I'm not deluded into thinking it's the best place in the entire world to work. So a couple of times a year for the entire time I've been here, I'll get... well. All the time, I'll get messages on LinkedIn from sure. recruiters, sure, yeah. but a lot of it's garbage. But a couple of times a year, a serious opportunity will cross my desk. Sometimes it's a friend who's started a startup. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's an opportunity at a bigger company or a smaller company. And I've gone through the interview process a couple of times almost every single year since I've joined. And every time I've done this, when I start the process... It's not just exercise. It's I could imagine myself leaving 1010 and working at this new or different institution. And I have, I would like to think, a reasonably objective set of measures that I score companies on. And I've yet to find any place that is better than 1010 along those dimensions that I measure uh, a potential employer I love talking to computer science and like math people about these things because you're like, yeah. so this is a rubric that I look at and criteria <laughs> that I think about. But I think it's so true though. Like I think we all have it. I think the our ability to articulate it, I think can be sometimes difficult for some folks to say why or why not. Like there's just a feeling I just want to stay here. And so I think there's always different factors to keep us at an organization or compel us to look at other things or go or make the jump finally to go somewhere else. Sure. And It helps as an exercise, and I mentioned I don't interview to exercise. It's been useful sort of doing it intermittently throughout my career. And when I shifted into management and started interviewing people, I got a lot better as an interviewee when I would interview elsewhere. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But taking the time to really think about what do you care about at an organization is really valuable. It's like my rubric is from most shallow to least shallow, uh, compensation. I have a mortgage and a family I yeah. need to get paid. Yeah. Um, it's the size of the business. So 1010 right now is 250 to 300 people, somewhere in that strata. And I can go to work and 
or any of my pe- any of the people on my team can go to work, and anything they do that day is going to have a measurable impact on the sure. business. Um, at the same time, I don't have to worry about the company vanishing because we've run out of venture runway or something like that. So they're in sort of a nice size that I like where it's big enough to be stable, but yeah. small enough that you can have an impact. Um, the third dimension is the work that I do. I sort of want to work on something I find interesting or intellectually stimulating. And the fourth one is the people. Um, I like to work with people that I like to work with. It's tautology, but it it really, when you have a lapse in faith with respect to the product or sure. the vision, if you're surrounded by enthusiastic, motivated people, then it's going to really keep you confident. So those are the things I measure awesome. at a business. Yeah. And it took a while for me to come up with that sort of, I had some other things and I threw them out and I test drove some things and said, no, nah, that's not it. But this is the kind of core things that I care about when measuring a business. Well, I'm sure that's evolved too as you've progressed in your career and obviously your family and things like that. Like sure. certain things pop up as, I, as more I will important note values, right? I ranked those from most shallow to least shallow. I did not rank them into priority order. And yeah. I will say over time, the priority has shifted a sure. lot. I am less attached to the size of a business now. Um, whereas like, as you mentioned, I have, I have a family, I have yeah. a mortgage. Um, and so the compensation component is going to be a bigger, it's going to hold a bigger slice of the pie than it used to. Yeah. What do you find interesting about the work you're doing now? So 1010 data is a big data analytics company in like, 10 seconds, we build a technology that's basically a spreadsheet for big data. So you can take tens or hundreds of terabytes of data and put it in an interface that an Excel user could be productive in. Sure. So it's an interesting combination of deep engineering challenges with respect to distributed systems, coupled with user experience challenges of making a system like that accessible to a target user who is not technical or only modestly technical. And that combination of problems I've found really interesting to work with. Sort of some days the problem is that we're having issues with replication across the cluster and performance isn't where it needs to be and we're solving that kind of problem. Other days it's we've built a feature and people can't aren't using it effectively. The telemetry we've built into the application indicates no one's using the feature we rolled out. And we have to figure out how did we mess this feature up from a usability perspective. Yeah. So being able to work in both of those camps I find to be a very interesting space. It's awesome. It's cool. Yeah. Is there anything that you like find surprising about being in industry, especially with your background of thinking you're going to go to like academia? It's hard right now. So I've, I've been in industry for 10 years. So right. it's hard to put myself in the shoes where I'd say what's surprising now. Cause I've been surprised and then surprised. And at some <laughs> points it begins to, wane mm-hmm. the you know you get you kind of get used to it sure um but something surprising in industry um i think the the level how serious people take it is varies tremendously and i think i'm still surprised by some people at both ends of the spectrum hmm. so you'll some people think you you know look at like work and people think oh it's their job and I have colleagues who, through no extra motivation, like we're a salaried company, we don't pay overtime, who will just live at work. And it's not because they, this is the kind of thing you think of in academia, where you have a, a grad student who's in the lab at all hours of the day and night. 
and it's because they're working towards a, a PhD. Mm-hmm. And we have colleagues, I have colleagues, who put in similar efforts in industry. And I've been at that point at times in my life. And the level of passion that people can apply to what amounts at the end of the day is it's, it's your nine to five job is sometimes stunning. And that still surprises me when I'm in midtown Manhattan on the weekends and I'm stopping by the office because I need to pick up something I left there on Friday or I want to use the bathroom or whatever. And I duck into the office and there's somebody just at their desk cranking away. And that's always, no matter how many times I've seen it, it ends up a little surprising. It's a little jarring. You're like, oh, what are you doing here? Exactly. (laughs) I've a, a regular refrain from me towards the end of the day is to tell my people go home. Yeah. Mm. Um, maintaining a healthy work-life balance is actually important. I would rather someone work a little bit less and be in aggregate more effective. Yeah. Again, you mentioned sort of when you talk about math people, I view it as if I integrate how effective you are throughout the day, you could work more hours but be less productive in each one of those hours. Sure. I'd rather you be more productive in a fewer number of hours. Makes sense, right? And you're you're looking out for your people, right? There's a certain, some argument to be made about balance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And finding some of that, some of that outside time. If somebody quits, the opportunity cost of hiring a new person, getting them trained, the uncertainty around that entire exchange is huge. And engineers, talented, motivated engineers are really hard to hire. At one point, a mentor told me, a manager will not appreciate how important hiring is until they've hired the wrong person. Mm. And at the mm. time I heard them, I digested it. I sure. thought I understood what they meant. And yep. then I hired the wrong person. And that's the sort of thing that once you really appreciate that lesson, you understand if my team is 1% less productive, but is measurably happier and I'm able to retain people yeah on average, some, you know, measurable amounts of time longer because of that, it pays off hugely. It's so hard. It's so expensive, obviously, from a business perspective of losing talent and, re- and bringing new talent in. But it's so palpable when the wrong person is on your team because there's a ripple effect, right, of that, of that individual. And other, on, especially if you have a good dynamic of, you know, people and balance and camaraderie. And I think one person can really throw that off. And absolutely. absolutely. You can have someone who is technically perfectly capable, yeah. someone who is smart and able to do the job. But if at the end of the day, no one wants to work with them or they are toxic in some way to the environment, yeah. it's not just that you could have somebody better in that role. It's that they're going to negatively impact the people around them. And when you get that toxic effect, yeah. when you've hired, really hired the wrong person, it's, it's hugely problematic. Oof. Yeah, it's kind of brutal. I know. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. So <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about hiring and you're talking to students here, like at the expos and things like that, what are qualities that you're looking for from students who want to apply maybe for an internship or even just characteristics or skill sets that they might have that they can take advantage of while they're here in undergrad? Sure. So I volunteer as a real reader for WRT. 273. Do I have that number yep, right, Perfect. Jeff? Spot on. Awesome. Um, they just tell us, alumni, that it's the Real Reader program. They don't really <laughs> tout the course number around. So 
the biggest piece of advice that I give, the most common piece of advice that I give to students is that your resume's job is to differentiate you from everybody else in your class. So I'm going to go to the Career and Talent Expo tomorrow. I'm going to collect 100 plus resumes and a bunch of them are going to have the exact same things on them. Yeah. Um, they're going to have sure. the same coursework, the same projects, and that's that just becomes noise. What I'm looking for as a hiring manager is how have you differentiated yourself from your peers? And this can come in a lot of forms. So the most obvious form is do internships. Um, an internship is going to be, you're gonna, probably going to be one of a small number of interns. And they probably won't be coming from the same institution. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to differentiate yourself. But what if, uh, answering your question, Danae, what if you're applying for an internship? So there, um, research is a great way to differentiate yourself. If you're one of a small number of students working in a lab, mm-hmm. by definition, that differentiates you from your peers. Personal projects, maybe you're one rung below academic research in that they are personal. It's something, an initiative that you took on your own. And if they're substantial and they stand out, then that's great. Um, REUs are a good opportunity. They're sort of in the same bracket as research. Uh, These are research experiences for undergrads, and they're an awesome way to get some experience. Specifically in the uh, software world, if you can do... Um, if you can make contributions to open source technologies, mm. specifically open source tools that I've heard of, that's one of the most impressive things that you can do. Um, you could do an internship at XYZ Co. And I'll trust that you are not lying on your resume, <laughs> but I don't know. I haven't heard of them. Like I've heard of Google. Cool. Google's cool. <laughs> um, I've heard of you know Facebook and Netflix and Twitter and all those, but... <laughs> It's hard to get internships there. Yeah. Um, if because a recommendation I give specifically to computer science students is if you go on GitHub and you filter by the language your favorite language, the language you are strongest at, and you sort by a number of stars, you will now have the most visible projects that you might be qualified to contribute hmm. to. And some projects are really hostile, and there are people who yell at you because you did things very slightly the wrong way. But a lot of people in the open source community are more than happy for you to come in and just like fix some documentation or add some unit tests. And if I get a resume that says that you have accepted commits to something like Redis, which is a very visible project on GitHub, you're going straight to the top of the stack. That's like, wow, you've you've contributed to Redis. That's we use Redis. That's cool. And but really, the answer is you have to differentiate yourself. Your resume's purpose is to get your foot in the door. Its goal is to let you have a conversation, and it's a talking piece kind of from there out. But the more samey it is relative to other people in your class, at your school, at other schools, the less effective it's going to be. So if you see someone with Visual Basic, you put them at the top of the list and you just like go for it? Absolutely. Straight to the top. (laughs) You're like, this is a keeper right here. There we go. She's going to add a lot of value to my team. Have you seen that at all? Have you seen people with Visual Basic anymore? Once in a while. That's good. Conversation point for you, right? I'd like to have that. (laughs) I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast today. This was some really great advice and I hope everyone out there listening 
you've paid attention, especially about Visual Basic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. John. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the years of support you gave you yes. back to the institution and you give back to our students and other alumni. So I really appreciate it. Joe, then I thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed this and I keep coming back to recruit at Rochester because we keep finding fantastic talent. So like we have a dozen or so Rochester alums at 1010. So for, for me, it's again, I can say it's strictly greedy. I come here because not because I want to come back. I do, but we (laughs) come here because we bring great people into the company through Rochester. Awesome. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. It's been great to have you back. My pleasure. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on your podcast listening platform of choice, subscribe, and share us with your friends. Thank you so much, and see you next time on Careers Unfiltered.